0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to session six of our study of Esther. Today, we're in chapter three, verse 10 through chapter four, verse three. So in today's session, we're going to begin kind of in the middle of an exchange between Haman and the king. And so I think it will be helpful to review a little bit about what we talked about last week. And as you remember, Haman was the king's royal official, and he was elevated to the level of a prime minister of sorts. The king gave him the honor of having all the other officials at the king's gate bow to him and pay him homage. Now, Mordecai refused to do this because he was a Jew, and there was a history of animosity between the Jewish people and Haman's people. Haman was so infuriated at Mordecai that he plotted to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. So he approached the king to get approval for his murderous plan, and that's where we are today. So let's read chapter 3, verse 10 through 4:3 in the CSB. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hammedatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the thirteenth day of Adar, the twelfth month. A copy of the text, issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, while the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted and wept and lamented. So King Ahasuerus buys in to Haman's plan. Haman persuaded the king by appealing to his pride and using vague half-truths. Those who promote evil are skilled at manipulation and twisting the truth. What is sad is that the king had no idea that by approving Haman's plan to annihilate all Jews, he's also sentencing Esther, his own queen. So the king, in verse 10, removed his signet ring and gave it to Haman thus giving Haman the authority to do whatever he wanted. It appeared that the king had a great deal of trust in Haman. I mean, it wasn't as if he had Haman draw up the papers for the edict and he read over them before sealing it with his ring. He gave Haman his ring to do with as he pleased. And in Persia, anything signed and sealed into law was absolute. It could not be repealed. The king could not change his mind or rescind the law. He's basically giving away his power by giving Haman his ring. King Ahasuerus gave Haman the power and authority to command the destruction of God's chosen people. Not a very wise move on the king's part. But in Haman, the king saw a wise and trusted friend. But that is about as far from the truth as you can get. It's important to be careful about who we choose to be our friends. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't love our neighbors and be friendly. I mean, we share the gospel most effectively through friendships. But sometimes, we may allow people into our inner circle who don't have our best interests at heart. I mean, they may be fun to be around and have great personality. They may be popular or attractive, but they're not good influences on us. Clearly, the king enjoyed being around Haman. Verse 13 says that after the law to destroy all the Jews was made public, They sat down and drank together. Haman may have been fun to be around. Maybe he was charismatic and wealthy, but he was a terrible influence on the king. Haman pretended to have the king's best interests at heart, but his only goal was satisfying his own personal vendetta. Have we too allowed certain people to become our friends who are fun to be around and act like they care about us, but in reality, they're just trying to get something from us using us for emotional support, while influencing us in the wrong way. We must be aware of whose voices we're listening to. What are their intentions toward us? Do they have our best interests at heart or their own? Do their words and actions line up? Is being friends with that person leading us toward Jesus or away from him? And in verse 11, we see that the king has allowed himself to be manipulated to such a degree that he even tells Haman to keep the money that he offered to pay. Back in verse 9, Haman offered to put 375 tons of silver into the royal treasury to carry out his wicked scheme, which was roughly two-thirds the amount of the entire royal treasury. But the king rejects the money. Ahasuerus is a fickle, indecisive king who is unwilling or unable to make any authoritative decision on his own. He told Haman in verse 11, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. In chapter one, the king couldn't decide what to do when Queen Vashti refused to appear at his banquet. So he did what his advisors told him. Then when he missed his queen and couldn't decide what to do, again, he did what his advisors told him. And here, Haman presented a problem, although a fictitious problem. And instead of doing a little investigating, maybe finding a solution on his own, the king did exactly what Haman told him to do. I mean, does this man ever think for himself? I believe there are two main reasons why people are indecisive. One, they're unprepared to make the decision. Or two, they don't want to take on the responsibility of making the decision. So they let somebody else do it. Think for a moment about the first time you bought a car. You were most likely indecisive because you were unprepared. It was a new experience for you. I mean, do I buy new or used? What kind? What color? How much money can I afford to spend? A lot of factors to consider. But once you took some time and energy and did some research, prepared yourself for the decision, it became easier. Decisions are easier when we prepare ourselves to make them. Now imagine you see someone at work stealing or falsifying information. Do you speak up? Now here you have to weigh the responsibility that comes with making the decision. If you reveal what you saw, there may be a price to pay. It may cost you something. You have to take on the responsibility of that decision. Now as Christians, we know what we should do, but that doesn't mean that we don't consider the cost and what it means to bear the responsibility. I think that's another reason why we need Jesus in our lives. As Christians, we can pray through our decisions and seek Jesus' wisdom and guidance. Jesus reminds us of what is truly important and gives us the strength to make the hard decisions, knowing he will be with us no matter what the cost. I believe the king was both of these things. He was not prepared to make those decisions, and he wasn't willing to take the responsibility for making the tough choices. So he let other people do it for him. And as we're going to see, it's only going to cause him tremendous problems in his future. Avoiding making decisions because we're unwilling to prepare ourselves or unwilling to accept responsibility for them doesn't avoid problems. It just postpones them. So Haman is given the authority to carry out his wishes. Verse 12 says that the edict to destroy all the Jews was written to each group in each province in each person's own language. One thing can be said about Haman, he was thorough. He made sure that everyone, no matter what language they spoke or where in the Persian Empire they lived, would know about this horrible law. This was his chance to rid himself of the people he saw as his enemies, and he took full advantage of it. So letters were sent by couriers to the officials in each province telling them that on a certain day, the 13th day of the 12th month, they were to destroy every Jewish person, young, old, women, and children. Now, we may think that given how vast the Persian Empire was, that the Jewish people would have been able to find some places where they could hide. But Persians had a way of transmitting messages that was both quick and efficient, sort of like an ancient Pony Express. And historians speculate that there were thousands and thousands of Jews living throughout the Persian Empire at that time. So this was not some sort of half-baked, pie-in-the-sky dream of Haman's. This was a well-orchestrated, thought-out scheme that appeared to have a good chance of success. Perpetrators of evil are often smart and very good at what they do. But we mustn't be intimidated, because the one who is in us is greater greater than anything the world can throw at us. Haman further solidified his plan by saying that the officials could plunder the goods of the Jewish people they killed, thus offering incentives for the genocide. Haman's plan may have appeared sophisticated and thorough, but what we must remember is that God, he has already been at work to prevent this plan from succeeding. God is omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, present everywhere. The devil is none of those things. Satan is a created being. Therefore, he has limits that God does not. Satan cannot see the future, so he can only plan according to what he can see in our present world. But God sees it all, our past, present, and future, and he plans according to all of it. So take heart, dear believer, when the devil's plan seems so powerful and prevalent. Trust God, whose plans are so much stronger, so much bigger, so much greater. Haman was so confident that his plan would be successful, that in verse 15, after the edict was issued, he sat down to drink with the king. Who could be so callous to issue the deaths of thousands of innocent men, women, and children, then sit down to a banquet? Haman thought his problems were over. He was set for life. But little did he know that he had just initiated his own destruction. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Helen Keller once said, Science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. And isn't that true? People can, be so, can become so consumed with their own agendas, their own points of view and personal interests, that the needs of others becomes insignificant, or worse, non-existent. Now, I can't say that there are many people like Haman in our world today, people who plan genocide, but our culture is filled with opportunities to focus on self. We are bombarded with messages on how to look better, feel better, think better, be better, How many times have we heard someone say, to be a better parent, spouse, worker, or friend, you need to focus on yourself first? This is a deception, in my opinion, in order to distract us from becoming, into becoming so focused on improving ourselves that we become oblivious to the needs of others. I love what Matthew 25 verses 35 through 40 say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. By serving others, we're serving Jesus. So when Mordecai heard about this law in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went to the middle of the city, up to the king's gate, crying loudly and bitterly. Now as you know, sackcloth and ashes in Scripture signifies grief, mourning, and repentance. There are many instances in Scripture of the grief-stricken wearing sackcloth and ashes. Genesis :37:34, Jeremiah 49:3, 2 Samuel 1:11 and 12, and Nehemiah 9:1 and2, just to name a few. Mordecai wasn't afraid to show that he was a Jew and how grieved he was at this law he went to the public square. But he wasn't allowed to enter the king's gate dressed that way, perhaps because the king was to be shielded from anything negative. Wearsby says that what a contrast it is between this king, who lived in luxury, protected from anything that might make him uncomfortable, and our priest-king, Jesus, who welcomes us to bring our burdens and sorrows to him. Mordecai was devastated at this news, as anyone would be, and at that moment, he was the only person in a position to do anything about it. Queen Esther was unaware of the edict at that point. Mordecai was the only one in the proper position to help save his people, much like Joseph was the only one in the right place to save the Jews from famine in Genesis 47. God often places his followers in positions of facing insurmountable odds. Look at David and Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Mordecai facing the destruction of his people. What insurmountable odds do you face? I believe God places people in these types of situations in order to display himself to you and to a watching world. When two unknown, nondescript people like Mordecai and Esther are placed in positions to help save their entire race— then one has to admit there are other factors going on here. When things are accomplished through us, they're so obviously beyond anything we can accomplish ourselves, then it has to be God. God may allow circumstances that make us feel weak or incapable or insignificant, but not to harm us, but to work through us. He wants us to depend on His power, His strength, His joy, His wisdom, and His peace. Because His is better. We can accomplish so much more by depending on Him than only on ourselves. So if you're facing an immovable mountain right now, stop trying to move it by yourself. Strap on your tools and climb it. Clothe yourself in prayer. Arm yourself with God's Word. Partner up with Jesus and start climbing. And that's our challenge for this week as we close to change our perspectives on how we view our mountains. Rather than seeing them as strongholds that keep us down and hold us back, let us pray to see them as opportunities for God to display his power and to show us just how mighty he really is. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.